This is Gil Manser welcoming you to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Tonight's program features writers from two distinctive Sonoma County activities. The National Endowment for the Arts March 2013, Big Read focusing on the poetry of Emily Dickinson, and the 6th Annual Sebastopol Documentary Film Festival, which runs from Thursday, March 21st through Sunday, March 24th. To honor Emily Dickinson, I have invited Anne Goldman and Gillian Connolly, two distinguished writers and professors from Sonoma State University who are, if you will forgive the pun, well-versed in the life and work of America's great poet. And to showcase Sebastopol's award-winning documentary film festival, three filmmakers will be joining the festival's director, Jason Perdue, to provide our listeners some insights into making their outstanding films. We will start off with the Emily Dickinson Roundtable. Ann Goldman was born in Philadelphia in 1960, but grew up in Montana, Minnesota, and Massachusetts. And she tells us that before becoming a writer and teacher, she held a variety of jobs, including digitizing the letters for Adobe Systems font Times New Roman. She also worked delivering the San Jose Mercury News to help support herself through Stanford University. Settling in the San Francisco Bay Area in 1978, Ann earned a PhD in English from the University of California, Berkeley, and she is now a professor at Sonoma State University, presenting a course entitled Major Authors, Emily Dickinson, and is the 2011 recipient of the Bernie and Estelle Goldstein Award for Excellence in Scholarship at SSU. Anne is the author or co-editor of three books, including Take My Word, Autobiographical Innovations of Ethnic American Working Women, and Continental Divides, Revisioning American Literature. Her shorter work has been honored with a special mention by the Pushcart Prize and included as a notable essay, in the Best American Essay Collections of 2007, 8, 9, 10, and 2012. She is joined by Gillian Connolly, the renowned poet, writer, and SSU professor who earned her MFA from the Program for Poets and Writers at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Gillian's award-winning books of poetry include Profane Halo, Lovers in the Used World, Tall Stranger, Some Gangster Pain, and The Plot Genie. Gillian is the recipient of the Jerome J. Shestack Poetry Prize from the American Poetry Review, as well as several Pushcart Prizes. Professor and Poet-in-Residence at Sonoma State University, she's also the founder and editor of the Volt Literary Magazine and the advisor for the award-winning SSU student literary magazine, ZOM. Anne and Gillian, I want to welcome you to Word by Word. And since you teach a review course in Emily Dickinson, perhaps you could offer some insight as to why the poetry of this agoraphobic single woman appeals to so many readers. I think that's the sort of eye-speaking voice in, in part. Um, she really does write a lyric poetry that feels um, a little bit like the way jazz singers sing, like a good jazz singer can sing and you can hear her, you can put on a CD and feel like she's she's singing to you mm-hmm. alone. And I do think that there is a sense in... Um, not always, but in 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 the poetry that um, there's a there's a quality of feeling that um, that's communicated very quickly, and that people hold on to that. And I think as well that she does write about um, homely things much of the time. She ultimately makes them strange in a lot of ways, but she does. She'll write about flowers. She'll write about a locomotive. She'll write about what it looks like to watch a hummingbird. And uh, and she talks about the sort of route of evanescence, the, the color tracery that flits by when a hummingbird darts away. Let me stop here. So when you use the word homely, mm-hmm. most of – when I think of the you know connotative meaning for that, it means someone plain or not uh, not the opposite of beautiful. 
She means domestic. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it's good that you raise that because I think that is a problem with reading Dickinson's work and, in fact, with reading all women writers and perhaps poets in particular. Um, but like Plath, we, we tend to come to Dickinson. Sylvia with, Plath. Right. Exactly. Yes, thanks. Um, like her, a more contemporary poet, we, we come to the work of these two women um, with um, preconceptions about their state of mind and, you know, Sylvia Plath uh, as, a, as a depressed woman, um, Dickinson as, as someone who has been called an agoraphobic, although, in fact, her letters as well as her poems make um, abundantly and vividly clear that she was out much of the day in her garden, um, walking around um, her neighborhood. Um, she, she didn't close herself off. She was probably less closed off than a lot of us are in our own homes with our computers, exactly. Um, so, so there's that. But um, I, I think that that's probably the hardest thing as a teacher um, uh, to, to teach her work is, is to get people past that image of the woman in white that we were discussing earlier or the, right. the, the, the Belle of Amherst. And it's not that that – With that, the closed that, door and talking people through the door. Exactly. And, and a kind of woman who has neurasthenia, who, who has – who's, who's sort of repulsed by sexuality. There's quite a lot of um, – um, eros in her work, and there's even um, I would argue um, in some very late poems, um, there's even sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and but again, well, we'll, I think maybe this is a good time to read a poem. Okay, don't you think? So that <laughs> sure. our listeners get a sense on their ear of what we're talking about. And you know, we were we were looking for we were looking <laughs> the, the perfect poem. one. Yes, right. and I, I had it. Now you've got three themes. Actually, several things you can talk about. You can talk about the scientist of the soul. The mm-hmm. I speaking voice, the accessibilityness, uh, accessibility of it, and the sensuality or sexuality yeah. of it. I, you know, I, I think that her work is accessible, but I also think that it's actually difficult too, and that and I and that she's ultimately writing about infinity. And wow! Well, yeah, yeah. So I don't. I I I I think to. Um, so the words may be few. But they were carefully chosen. Oh, yeah. And they're all – something we don't know is that we really didn't have her referent points. We hadn't read the Bible the way probably she had studied it. We yeah. hadn't uh, – we weren't aware of the other you know, new earth-shaking scientific mm-hmm. discoveries of the time. We kind of know them historically but not mm-hmm. – they weren't on the front page of the newspaper. Mm-hmm. But the, the thing that she does – and then Anne's going to read this point – that is – she was interested in how many associations she could get going uh, in one poem, so that mm. you didn't you you did there you it's it's almost impossible to read an Emily Dickinson poem one way. Mm. It's it goes the lines go refer to what came before and what came after, and there are the dashes, and it's very yeah, yeah. you know it's it's a very complex sort of situation. And so it's therefore really, really, really rich. We're going to come back to that. Let's hear a poem. Um, I'm going to read Safe in Their Alabaster Chambers. Oh, yes. I should say that um, the poems um, don't have any titles. Safe in Their Alabaster Chambers, untouched by morning and untouched by noon, lie the meek members of the resurrection, rafter of satin and roof of stone. Grand go the years in the crescent above them, Worlds scoop their arcs, and firmaments row. Diadems drop, and doges surrender, soundless as dots on a disk of snow. And I um, want to get back to that notion of, in, of um, infinity, eternity. Uh, it probably helps to remember that uh, the scourge of the 19th century was consumption or, mm-hmm. or tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. And 
so um, Emily Dickinson, like many of her family and many of her community, would have watched people suffer and 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 die slowly. Um, Diphtheria too. Yes, yeah. yes, and and so that 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 sense of of death would have been with them. She writes often about it, and I think that is probably one reason. You know, it it it, it one um, possibility or one reason that she might write so often about time and about the passage of time. And, and the poem that I just read is from the point of view. We're actually located underground in the tombs uh, with the dead, and um, it's. A, a, we're, an exceptional... in a, we're in a, uh, a coffin, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, we're in an alabaster chamber, some kind With of, satin of stone. Lining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and the, the time is actually made material in this sort of wheeling, um, this notion of, of a wheel and grand go the years and the crescent above them, worlds scoop their arcs mm-hmm. and firmaments row. So a notion of, of, of cycles, of, of rowing. And then um, we have human time. In the invocation to a doge, right, and the, the Italian reference exactly, right. and that human humans have to surrender, and even even those um, who would be considered as religious authorities and municipal authorities have to surrender. And um, our, our perspective as humans is is about as large as a, a snowflake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So. I'm a teenage person, and I pick up that poem, and it uh, reverberates somehow. Why? Reverberate is a very interesting word to use because as Gillian was talking about the dashes that that Dickinson uses, uh, when I look at her poetry, I I think about those models, and it's been – I was a teenager when I first looked at these, those those models of molecules. Mm -hmm. So those those little uh, circles or orbs and then there there were these connectors between them. And and her work is like that for me. Rather than using punctuation that that clarifies which phrase is is most important, they're all equivalences. And they do just kind of vibrate next to one another. So they're both joined or linked and divided. And – what that does, I think, is to create a series of associations, and it it does give the poems a sense of a quality of energy that I think appeals to people. Now, my understanding in reading this quickly, you know, before we got together, is that a few of the poems were printed in her lifetime, but they were mm-hmm. not printed as she had written them out on the page. No, right? you make weren't. references to the the m dashes yeah. that she used yeah. in the and the breaking up of a line that it would drop down to the you know the line below and such, yeah. um, and the editors. Just said, oh well, we'll make it look like every other poem mm-hmm. that you know. We, we no, see. they did a huge disservice. The first editors she had were um, her brother Austin Dickinson's lover, Mabel Loomis Todd, <laughs> and um, is that in relation to the Todds and the Lincolns? Todds? No, no. Okay. Her, they were they were citizens of Amherst. That David Todd, who was her husband, was a uh, would often give talks and was sort of on the lecture circuit. Uh, he was a, a scientist and an inventor. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they they took the they found the poems and they normalized the rhymes. All uh, that's the other thing that's unusual yeah. about her. Her rhymes are are not perfect rhymes. They're they're off rhymes. They they sounded very strange um, to the uh, you know Puritan New England ear, and they removed all of the dashes. So. You had a very different poem that was presented as with Emily Dickinson, and this whole bit about the 
the white dress and her eccentricity and all of that, which I think is something that she actually courted herself as a citizen of Amherst when she when she was alive. Um, they it was continued and it was kind of marketed in that way. Mm-hmm. And it's not until 1955 when um, you get the Johnson edition where the dashes are restored and the um, the the rhymes are are as she intended them to be. And one interesting little story, and then I'll stop, is uh, Audrey and Rich uh, talked about, because she read, you know, the the early Emily Dickinson when she was a young <clears throat> poet, where she read the normalized uh, rhymes and no dashes and all of that. And she talked about when, and here she is, you know, 50s housewife, reading, starting to write poetry herself, and she read those poems mm-hmm. for the first time, and she said that she, it really did feel like the top of her head went, went off, which mm-hmm. is what Dickinson used to say, that that's what poetry was, that this was a completely different poet with um, the dashes put in and the the rhymes as, as they should have been. It was a more complicated, um, passionate uh, full of turmoil, conflict, skeptical, exciting, scientific, you know, all that's the things that Anne were, was mentioning mm-hmm. that was, you know, really packaged and whitewashed uh, when it was first printed. So it's an interesting publishing history. And it's interesting that Gillian was mentioning this, the sense to in, in which she was invested in, in her own representation as a writer, and and the fact is that even though she didn't publish much, first of all, she did send many of her poems in letters to to individuals. So she had a sense of audience. Mm-hmm. She wasn't writing just for herself, um, and she also took all of most of her, well, really all of the poems, I think, mm-hmm. and she ordered them into a kind of species of book that wasn't printed or published. But we, we call these the fascicles. Could you um, spell that so I can? F-A-S-C-I-C-L-E-S. And that means what? That's a good question. I thought it was were, fascicles were, as in facets they were the They were little bundles, bundles, bundles. of of, of pack, packaged like poems that she had ordered in a particular way mm-hmm. and tied a ribbon around. And that's what her sister found when she died. They that's were, the presentation and, she preferred. Yeah, that's yes. that's what she had. And then the other thing that's a fascinating thing I think about her work is that um recently um the after she quit writing in a formal sort of way later later in her life and she, but because she literally didn't have much time she was taking care of her mother and um you know, it's just a huge ordeal to go through she wrote on the backs of envelopes and little notes and you know there there is this whole body of work and it's really fragmented and it's all over the place mm-hmm. and it's really fascinating to look at because it looks so to to our eyes our you know postmodern contemporary eyes it looks like something that could have you know been done yesterday right and you know here it was that she was doing that in that century and you know the so there, it's an interesting thing to to look at and to think that the poems were that's what the poems were that she didn't have time to polish them and put them into her little fascicles anymore but they were they had a visual I think what you were talking about earlier is mm-hmm. that they had a visual as well as verbal right, right. Um, orientation and that she did, was that and you know at the, at the towards the last 
decade of her life, that's the kind of work she was doing. Mm-hmm. So it was very kind of avant-garde and, you know, experimental and innovative. And then I think that's why she's read and valued so much today is that it, her work always seems – it doesn't seem of its century. It actually seems more of our century. Right. The majority of her work was presented to the rest of the world by her sister after Emily died. And then you mentioned a 1955 um, – Reset or what was the word you used of it? Of it, um, that was the first edition of the collected um, poetry. I and and so, where would a reader go to find the best source other than you know dabbling online? So that's that's the Johnson. That's the edition, Thomas Johnson edition, which most okay. people use, I mm-hmm. think, still, and yeah. you can find it really anywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's also. Um, this would be for people who are really interested in looking at the evolution of the poem from her from the script, her own script to, to into text or a typeface mm-hmm. would be to look at the it's a Belknap um press, I think. Um or which would be Harvard, mm-hmm. I believe, University Press. And that that is a two volume work that reproduces um, the the look basically of photographs her. of what precisely yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's actually really interesting to look at for one thing her writing itself is um, it it leans but it 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 it's quite expansive across the page and mm-hmm. I'm not a handwriting expert but it's not cramped it's not small mm-hmm. it doesn't stutter it's mm-hmm. not stilted mm-hmm. and so even the way that the writing looks on the page looks like some looks more confident than mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. you know that picture that we mm-hmm. that we have of someone who's mm-hmm. hiding behind mm-hmm. behind. I think she absolutely knew she was a genius and she absolutely knew she was a fantastic poet. I don't think she had any doubt in her mind about that. There's an interesting other way to read. (laughs) Another thing, another part of Emily to read is her letters that Mm -hmm. survived. She had most of them destroyed that she had in the house Mm -hmm. under her the crest of her will or whatever. Mm -hmm. But many of them that she'd sent to other people, particularly a woman named Last name was Gilbert, as I remember. Sue. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, survived mm-hmm. and were re- have been reprinted in different versions and been mm-hmm. subject to all kinds of mm-hmm. differing interpretations about the floweriness of the language or the was it in fact a love letter or mm-hmm. whatever, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so, where is a good source for those? Those are, you can buy those in volumes. The the letters of Emily Dickinson mm-hmm. and they're as wonderful to read as the poetry. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. And among them are a group of poets called the Master Letters. And she wrote these very passionate, strange letters to dear master, and not to a specific person, or not, or do we know? Well, that's up for debate, and lots of critics have have posited lots of different ideas as to who who master was. Is master God? Mm. Is master Otis P. Lord? Is mm-hmm. master? There was a, a Springfield newspaper reporter named Samuel. Something I'm not recalling his last name, but he was someone who was a friend of hers and actually published one of her poems in the Springfield uh, newspaper. Mm-hmm. Very good-looking man. I remember seeing his photograph in the biography, and would come and visit her sometimes as well. So, but regard their their works of literature. You know, I think in her letters at that time were. You know, right. they were literary. They were most they were us, very uh, taken. They weren't just emails. Yeah, most <laughs> of us uh, heard the the uh, voice of that time when we heard the letters written from the Civil War battlefields. And, mm-hmm, you know, the mm-hmm, Civil War thing, mm-hmm. and and how different, and and not florid, but almost literary. The style. Yeah. Was. yeah. Well, yeah. I think I think writers perform in their letters um, mm-hmm. the way they do on the page. I mean, if that's what you if that's not what anymore. You're now we're doing short. 
cuts. Well, it would be interesting yeah. to think about that, like how that's changed um, the way contemporary the, – the, the letters or the what, – what do the emails and the um, – the, the, uh, messages of contemporary writers look like. But through the time of, you know, um, through the 20th century, I mean, Robert Lowell and Elizabeth Bishop, that's an amazing um, correspondence. Oh, yes. And mm-hmm. yeah. um, um, there too, you 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 see that, that there are personas on the page, even though they're writing as themselves to, to one another. It's um, about, in, in a sense, they're sort of exercising um, what they'll do in their work. And there's a lot of virtuosity in, in the sentences, just in the letters. Mm-hmm. One one thing we should probably talk about is her correspondence with Thomas Wentworth Higginson. Mm-hmm. Okay. He was a um an editor at the Atlantic Monthly of Poetry and she see this blows apart the notion that she was, you know, just this recluse writing along cuz she sought publication and she sent her work to him and he wrote her back and said he told her that he thought it had a spasmodic gait. Mm-hmm. Um, which it does. Which it does. Mm-hmm. And that he couldn't, it, you know, he just he couldn't make sense of it. It didn't read well to him. He wasn't going to publish them. And um, then an, at another point in time, he actually comes and visits her because they have a correspondence going mm-hmm. on with their letters. And he comes to the house and she comes down with a, a bouquet of lilies behind her and presents them to him and says, these are my introduction. Mm -hmm. And there's a description that he writes uh, in a letter to, I believe it's to his wife in describing having met her. Mm -hmm. And he he says, I'm just exhausted. I've never met someone, a creature like this, because she was apparently just very excitable and nervous and brilliant. And um, he was worn out by her. Her mind was on a different level than his. I think she must have been intense. I mean, if the poetry is anything to go by, I mean, she asks the hard, she asks metaphysical questions all the time. She asks the same questions that actually that physicists ask Mm -hmm. about relationships between small, very small things and very large things. She asks the same questions that men ask. Yes. um, Yes. And this would be quite different compared to most women at the time. Oh, well, yeah, she was she. I don't know. You know, there were a lot of women that were doing some very interesting things at the time. I, I just think that that it, it, it we don't read about them as much as we should, or they're not presented to us as much as they can be in our, the culture. One being Mabel Loomis Todd, who's the woman who mm-hmm. took and kind of screwed up her whole manuscript <laughs> from the very <laughs> beginning. But she was a fascinating person um, who was giving all of these talks around the town. And uh, Susan Dickinson, who was married to Austin Dickinson, um, also was a strong figure in the town of Amherst. And um, Dickinson has a line in one of her poems in which she speaks of, of of her own physicality. There's actually two different places that I'm remembering. One is she said, I, I am the only kangaroo. I'm the kangaroo among the beauties, mm. which is just an amazing image, I think. And I, I think it not only refers to how she saw herself physically, but also in terms of her poems, that they were strange, that they were not, you know, she she would talk about, um, who am I trying to remember, um, a romantic Uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She said, have you ever read her poems backwards? (laughs) 
because that was more thrilling to her than reading them from top to bottom and that she enjoyed them more that way. She had this unusual mind. And people in Amherst, if you read the biography, there's a Richard Sewell biography Mm -hmm. that's fantastic. It's in two volumes. And when you read the biography, um, people in the town, when they got a letter from Emily, would be thrilled because it was like, oh, I got a letter from Emily and sit down. And they would know that there would be something impenetrable or so idiosyncratic, but that, that it would be unusual and it would be they would be entertained and and their minds would be delighted in some way, you know. And and so she knew that she, – and she had that reputation in the town of being that kind of person. And yeah, I, th- I think she didn't care for protocol and, and women are the keepers of, of, of protocol and convention typically. And also I think in the way we're expected to speak even now. And mm-hmm. I, I think that she um, wasn't interested in doing that, although you do see in some of the poems the pressure to, to – to, to speak as a, as a kind of a hostess or in a way that invites people, you know, that as women are mm-hmm. sort of expected to do in this sort mm-hmm. of genteel way. And you do see that in some of the poems which have – which I read often as – as critical as as sort of mocking um, of that of that voice, it's mm-hmm. partly it's sort of pseudo childlike, mm-hmm. uh, sort of fal- a false brightness. Mm-hmm. Um, the, actually, the "I'm Nobody" poem that is so famous is is one that 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 sounds like that to my ear. And I, mm-hmm. I think she's stepping back and looking at the way women are are supposed to to voice themselves, mm-hmm. and she's she's pushing against it mm-hmm. completely. Uh, female poets in that time period, <clears throat> excuse me, they, they, there were things, there were certain ways that they had to write in order to be published. They had to be, have piety. They had to have, uh, there's, um, servitude towards the family, domesticity, the husband, um, of, of Christian faith and, um, humility. All of those qualities had to be present. Uh, for the poetry to be published, and Dickinson pushed against all all of that, mm-hmm. and that's another reason why she's so, uh, you know, valued it. And and she didn't do it in a dogmatic sort of why. She's too individualistic. Yeah, yeah. she's and, just and, too. Good and that's for that. probably part of it as well. I mean, she's a maverick, and she mm-hmm. knew it, and we know it when we read her. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, in that mm-hmm. way, she mm-hmm. she is kind of an iconic American. I mean, she fits with that mythos mm-hmm. that we have mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that people um, define themselves um, distinctly from others mm-hmm. and uh, and mm-hmm. in um, as individuals rather than as as part of a collective. Yeah, and I don't know where she got it when you think about her family because her father was this foreboding, stern. stern Man, he didn't did not yeah. want them reading books. Really? You know, no, that's in the biography. Did not want them. I mean, they they were there were certain books that were to be read, and and other ones were not. They were frivolous. And then and her then her mother was was really ill most of her life. And then there's Lavinia, but she and Austin Dickinson, her brother, had a very strong relationship and enjoyed one another's company. And you can see it in the letters that they wrote back and forth. To each other, and it's really unfortunate that we don't have the letters that uh, uh, that were written back to Dickinson because Lavinia had she had been instructed to destroy them. Mm-hmm. So we don't have we, you know it's like a one sided sort of conversation a lot of it. But well, where she a, got a, all that, we I don't. I have a know. question for you here. Now, what Anne mentioned earlier, she referred to her as a scientist of the soul, and I made a logical assumption. Well, she's communicating with the world around her through 
you know, magazines or some other written way because she's not interacting with people that much. Mm-hmm. Is that – but what you're describing is that her father didn't want her to do that. Well, remember, I mean she – the way people interacted with others was, was – would have been through correspondence. Through correspondence. Um, mm-hmm. And she certainly did that. Um, she did – she talks about the – Books that were the most valuable to her as being the Bible, the dictionary, and Shakespeare, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think – But none w- of them current, really. Well, I know, that, I know that Emerson was a family friend and mm. a friend of her father's. And Emerson came to their house one time and she didn't come downstairs to meet him. Um, and she loved Emerson and, and read Emerson. So – and she and she read Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She read there's she we know she read Whitman. She found him what was the adjective that she used? She found him unruly or you know she couldn't read Whitman, but she did read him. So, you know that he that it did cross her it was in her radar. And yeah, and if you look at her poetry, almost all of it its locale is is nature. Uh it's, sometimes it's foreign places. Um it's very rarely in the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she'll be in a carriage with death or outside, outside somewhere. Looking at flowers uh-huh. mm-hmm. in a train. Lots mm-hmm. of floral imagery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also celestial imagery. Mm-hmm. Although, mm-hmm. I, again, I agree with Gillian that, that more often than not, um, she, was, she was very skeptical about faith. And um, she was the only person in her family not to, um, to be sort of reaffirmed in, in, in her faith. And that must have been a very hard thing. And it shows – I think it does suggest how rebellious she was that, mm-hmm. that she wouldn't she wouldn't do that. Tell mm-hmm. me what you mean by reaffirmed in her So that these, these um, revivals came through ah, okay. mm-hmm. and one after the other, um, all of the members of her immediate family uh, within a period of a few years – uh, stood up um, at one of these meetings and and found grace. And Emily Dickinson did not do that. Mm-hmm. And when I think about the way she writes about God, um, there are poems that are very there's there's a great deal of reverence in, in the poetry, but it's Emersonian, I think, more than than it is um, more universalist. Yes, and mm-hmm. it's it's more about the it's more about our re- sense of relation to the natural world. But right. mm-hmm. the, the line that sticks in my head is um, is burglar, banker, father. So she equates in one line. She equates God with a, a banker and a, and a burglar, mm-hmm. um, and that mm-hmm. seems um, entirely um, blasphemous. Yes, heretical. <laughs> yes, precisely. Yeah, yeah. but then a- if you, th- I mean, if you think about it, God is a burglar because God takes takes people. A, takes people away. Oh yes. So well, not just people, but thoughts mm-hmm. and wishes and dreams. Yes, but uh, no, absolutely. I mean, I think I think she was really referring to the fact that of watching people die, you know, bef- before their time too. I mean, mm-hmm. as as young people dying and and feeling like that that's what mm-hmm. how how do you account? How do we um conduct ourselves in a way that mm-hmm. that that a, how can we deal with that? It's not an easy thing. And I don't think there's any sort of bravado or or arrogance in her work about not having faith, I think there's a lot of pain mm-hmm. about. I think it was hard, difficult, extremely difficult for her, and 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 yet that she was extremely honest about that. And so, very often the poems end in a place of void or absence or infinity or you know what's there. And to me, that's you know in terms of it being something that 
people go back to again and again and probably will hopefully forever is that that big huge question of if God isn't there, what is what, there? What is, what is here? What is yeah. there? Well, that's the eternal question, isn't it? That's yeah. what's formed most religions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she talks about um, something that's zero at the bone. Mm-hmm. She writes about the moment of now, and she really tries to get at that. Um, and, of course, that, that's an impossibility, right? You have the past falling away on one side and the, the future sort of pressing in on the other. But she does mm-hmm. try, I think, in the poetry to to try to get at a, a moment that as soon as you recognize that it's there, of course, it's already passed. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been fascinating. Quite an interesting discussion. I appreciate both of you coming in Thank and, and you. talking with fun. me about, it's fun about to get a fascinating our... woman. You are listening to Word by Word Conversations with writers on KRCB-FM or live on krcb.org. Tonight's program features writers from two distinctive Sonoma County activities. The National Endowment for the Arts March 2013 Big Read, focusing on the poetry of Emily Dickinson, and the 6th Annual Sebastopol Documentary Film Festival, which runs through Thursday, March 21st through Sunday, March 24th. This next Word by Word segment showcases Sebastopol's award-winning 6th Annual Documentary Film Festival. Three filmmakers, Randy Hall, Juliet Snowden, and Malia Brooker, will be joining the festival's director, Jason Perdue, to let our listeners get behind-the-camera insights into the, uh, making these outstanding films. Jason Perdue is the program director and has been a member of the San Francisco Film Society for 20 years, traveled to film festivals around the country, and has seen firsthand how successful festivals are run. He took on the role of the program director for the SDFF in 2009 and brings a true film fan's perspective to programming. Joining Jason in the studio is local filmmaker Randy Hall. All right, uh, Randy, I couldn't find a lot about you as a bio online, and you were yeah. going to tell me a little bit about yourself. I'm something of, a, of an enigma in that way. Uh-huh. Uh, no, I, uh, I've been in uh, Sonoma County since uh, 2006 and um, came up from Silicon Valley, so I, I was working in high tech for a long time. Uh, came up here, uh, kind of changed direction in my, in my life. We started farming and doing all sorts of stuff like that, and... Uh, 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 kind of ended up. We now. I now live out in uh, the Santa Rosa area. Um, I it says you live in the Laguna itself. Yeah, I live in the Laguna, and uh, um, well, not in the Laguna, but near. Uh, anyhow, it's, <laughs> you speak it what every time you leave the house, right? I know. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Uh, and I've I've just finished last year. Finished a uh, filmmaking school program or filmmaking program over in San Francisco. And uh, that was uh, kind of San Francisco the, School of Digital Filmmaking. That's correct. Yeah, right. and they, um, you know, it was a twelve-month program. As part of that, I actually created a short documentary mm-hmm. about a raw milk uh, dairy down in Fresno, and uh, that's the film that is uh, uh, was selected to uh, play at the documentary film festival. So I'm, it's called Utterly Direct. It's called Utterly Direct. And I know it is Utterly Direct. Essentially, it's, it's one of those talking head documentaries, wouldn't you say? With uh, some talking cows. Yeah. It, well, no talking cows. Mooing really. cows. Mooing cows. But um, it it is definitely a very short uh, kind of uh, portrait of this uh, dairyman who uh, who who kind of he he deals with. Um, you know, state interventions. Um, anytime anybody gets sick, and the State Department of Health Services um, interviews the the families, and they discover that raw milk is part of the the diet of mm-hmm. either the child mm-hmm. or the family, they go to his dairy and they shut him down. They quarantine him because and, he's only one of two certified dairies in the state. Exactly, and so um, and there are people who are rabid about 
drinking raw milk. Right. And so there's a demand and he's the he's one of two suppliers, but anytime anything um any anything bad happens health wise, uh he the the it seems that the response from the state is disproportionate to. Now, probably we should uh, let people know what raw milk is contrasted with the milk you usually buy in the grocery store in a carton or, or sure. bottle. Yeah, uh, raw milk is uh literally uh, as you as you the first line of the movie is it's milk directly out of a cow un unfiltered and unpro- well un, not exactly unfiltered but unprocessed in any way meaning it's not heat treated it's not pasteurized and pasteurized is a process that was designed uh, because there was a real problem with raw milk because pr- primarily listeria and e. correct yeah and right. the the problems uh, grew largely out of. Um, the fact that farms and dairies were brought into the cities and made very, very concentrated. The, the conditions that the cows were kept in were, mm-hmm. uh, were very unsanitary. And by extension, then uh, the, the milking parlors and the other par- the, where they actually ex- you know, milk the cows were unsanitary. And that led to these um, you know, huge health outbreaks. What you, what's, what's amazing is that uh, the, the process of pasteurization has actually allowed dairies to become very lax in their sanitation because they believe, oh, it'll be fixed when it – Traditional pastures. Yeah, absolutely. Not yeah. organic and – Not or, – well, uh, even organic dairies to a certain degree. But uh, the other problem that uh, you've, you come into is that the um, – all of the milk from all of the dairies that are kind of co-op together in a lot of uh, you know by distributors, their milk all gets thrown into the same tanks together. Mm-hmm. There's no separation. Right. So if one dairy has a sanitation problem, the whole milk supply has a sanitation problem. Gotcha. And so that's why they they so it's a it's a problem. So what what actually what's impressive about um, the the dairy, which the name of the dairy is Organic Pastures, um, they actually have a fantastic sanitation program because of the fact that they have to make sure that they can keep their um, what they call coliform counts or the you know the bad bu- you know any kind of bad bugs they keep those counts below a threshold um, as when they sample it and I'm I am no expert at this uh, but this is just what I gleaned from talking with the owner Mark McAfee and he is such a, a rabid spokesperson He's like they're the the champion of raw milk, and right. he's really um, he's really passionate about it. So. Well, let me ask you a question: As watching this, because I, I mean, it's only seven minutes long, which is right. one thing, and it's basically, I assume, a student project. We could call it. Yeah. So, but you did not. Did you try to get someone from the California? What's it? The Milk Advisory Board or whoever? Uh, yeah. The, who uh, does the testing and says no? By the way, there's a recall on these products. Uh, state agency that um, oversees all the dairies. And um, actually, their veterinarian, uh, their head veterinarian, has the uh, legal authority to walk in and um, uh, basically say uh, they could they could put your whole herd down mm-hmm. and just pay you for the the cost of the animals. Right. And that would be they right. have they. So it's 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 kind of weird. You're just like, what you mean they can walk in and kill your animals? And they like, can do that with a TB outbreak too. Yeah, yeah, or mad cow disease. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, it's. The 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 agencies that are involved are primarily the the California Department of Health Services, and I think that's still their acronym. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, uh, the the dairy agency that uh, uh, that oversees the, the the milk supply. So, Jason, what what you've heard uh, is what Randy's talked about. Uh, you know his short film and how it's uh, tied into the festival, and you have programmed it with another film about uh, food and farming. 
Uh, yeah, well, we programmed it. The feature film that it's playing with is called Betting the Farm, right? Which is a, a really interesting story about uh, a group of dairy farmers in Maine who um, had lost their contract with the big milk. Uh, I don't know. Co-op. Co-op. We'll yeah. yeah. And so they banded together to create what they called Maine's organic, Maine's own organic moo milk and um, uh, launched this business. And the film kind of uh, follows the travails of trying to launch an agribusiness, um, working with other farmers and the, and the uh, successes and failures as they go along that process. After this film at the uh, Sebastopol Center for the Arts, uh, Slow Food Russian River is bringing in a lot of different dairy products, uh, ice cream and cheese and different things, and they're going to do a little presentation, and it's going to be a, a bit of a closing event uh, for the film festival. So that will be on Sunday? That will be on Sunday That's evening, probably right. around 6 o'clock. It'll Sounds start. like fun. Yeah. It's it's amazing how this festival has uh, really been embraced by the surrounding community over the years. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that Sebastopol and and all of the Sonoma County really has has come to uh, enjoy what we do and appreciate the the uh, the efforts that we make to bring in these high quality documentaries. I mean, um, last year we were voted by uh, North Bay Bohemian as the best uh, film festival in Sonoma County, mm-hmm. which is you know. Um, I don't even know. There's probably seven or eight of them now, maybe even yeah, more. More than you, you think you there are. That's yeah. Right. <laughs> and so um, we're really proud of that. It really shows that um, our fan base really likes what we're doing and uh, and they keep coming out. I mean, last year we had a, a, about a 90% increase in attendance. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this year we have uh, more seats available than ever before. So we're hoping for a, a similar type of increase. Well, that is a perfect segue into the, my next question, which is we are in a whole new venue. There are going to be two screen um, rooms, we'll call them, or auditoriums, at what used to be known as, and many people still call the Sebastopol Vets Building, but is now the home of the Sebastopol Center for the Arts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we took over occupancy of the uh, Veterans Building uh, at the beginning of the year, and we um, built a gallery in the auditorium, and the other half of the auditorium is still an auditorium, and we're currently building a screening uh, facility in there. Mm-hmm. We have a, bought a beautiful, huge screen. We're mounting the projector. We're, we're working on the audio. And so it's going uh, to be quite incredible. And, you know, 200-plus seats in there right. um, uh, until we uh, started negotiating with the Rialto was going to be our biggest venue ever. Um, but then – uh, now now we're going to be at the Rialto again in the two theaters that we've been using for the past five years, but we're also going to be in Theater One, which is their big 245-seat uh, venue. So. That's right. A good, yeah. a good auditorium. Yeah. yeah. It's time for a conversation with Juliet Snowden, who is best known for being the screenwriter on the Nicolas Cage movie Knowing, and Kira Sedgwick's The Possession, as well as the remakes of The Birds and Poltergeist. But we will be chatting about her first documentary called Hollywood Hair. Hollywood Hair. I love that film, by the way. I've got to tell you that right up front. It's done in black Thank and you. white. Tell me why you chose that. Is there was there some reason? And it kind of adds a, uh, I don't know, a existential quality to the movie. Well, there's a long, long history behind this. Um, I moved to Los Angeles 20 years ago from um, Louisiana, and I didn't know a soul. Mm-hmm. I was broke. I didn't have a car. Um, and I found this ad for $3 haircuts in this bargain book. Right. And um, I went to the place because it was on Hollywood Boulevard. So I thought it was going to be, you know, pretty swanky, even though, you know, that $3 haircut thing should have been the tip, right? <laughs> um, and I walked into the doors of Hollywood Hair and 
It was the strangest place I had this, this poor Louisiana girl had ever seen in her life. <laughs> and um, Tony was the one who cut my hair. That's Tony Morales. Years ago. The barber, and right. um, I was so intrigued by the shop. There was, there wasn't a square inch of wall that was visible. There were, there's farm equipment, there's um, inventions, there's old photos of stars. There are fly tapes, you know, collecting dead, you know, flies buzzing around the shop. And um, Tony cut my hair and he was such a character and so funny um, that I went back the next month and got another haircut. And then I continued to go back for about six years. Mm. The whole time I was getting my hair cut there, I was meeting the other hairstylists and the other customers and also the people who just hang out. Right. And um, I was like, I have to, I have to tell these people's story. Well, they're more than customers. They're like family. Yes. 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 Um, I, I think it's no coincidence that I found this place knowing nobody and being an outsider to Los Angeles and... Um, I've screened this film for friends and they've said, they've all said, I would never have gone back. (laughs) And that's the difference between me and a lot of my friends. It's like, I I think I'm going to go back. I think Uh I'm going to go hang out there. Well, you are, your background before you did this doc is that you are a screenwriter. Did you approach this documentary with a screenplay in mind or did you just go and film shots of that you then put in re-edited, or how did this come together? Well, what happened was I got my hair cut there in the 90s mm-hmm. when I was in my 20s. Um, I shot it in my 30s. Mm-hmm. So I shot it actually in 1999 oh. in the year 2000. I had met um, this wonderful guy named Styles White, and we started dating, and I made him get his hair cut there. And um, we were talking about the shop quite a lot, and we went and bought, this was shot on high eight. There weren't even digital cameras back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so we actually shot the footage all more than 10 years ago. So I was not yet a paid Hollywood writer. I was working my full-time day job with a nonprofit. I was shooting this on the weekend and I was doing my screenwriting to try to break into the, the writing world um, every night after work and, and a lot of the weekends. Mm-hmm. Well, Styles is actually your co-writer, I think, on Knowing, if I remember. Yeah, right. yeah. Styles is my writing partner on everything. Oh, okay. Um, we're so married. Did, did he, put... uh, he shot Hollywood here. He's the producer of it. Okay. Um, a true partnership. So what what happened with Hollywood here is I I shot it in '99 and 2000, um, and the writing started taking off. We Wes Craven optioned our very first script and. Um, we got managers, and that started happening, and the writing had to become very serious. So I didn't have that free time on the weekends just to go hang out. The tapes sat on my shelf for 10 years, mm. um, and I would pass them every day <laughs> and feel really bad and really guilty. So um, three years ago, um, I was kind of making a list of some of the things that I wanted to do in in my life, and the first thing I wrote down was edit Hollywood Hair. So mm-hmm. I, I started that day. Well, the funny thing about Hollywood Hair is that um, it's almost like this could be somewhere. It has doesn't have to be in Hollywood. It's uh, yeah. The characters are um, lost souls or people looking for some support or trying to find a, a family who have, you know, like you, came to 
the Los Angeles area, uh, often from other places. And this is their uh, sphere of influence. They've, they've become uh, part of, of the activities that go on every week there. But they are uh, you have presented them in a very, not quite favorable light, but a very loving way. Yeah, that took, and, and the reason why, I'm really glad I did sit on the footage for 10 years. In that time, I became a mother. Um, I grew up a lot. I um, became a healthier person mm-hmm. um, emotionally. And when I finally sat down after 10 years with that footage, I had, I had, never, I had never even looked at the footage after a day of shooting. So oh, really? I literally, wow. it, it was more because my husband was on the camera and everybody was just talking to me. So my experience in the shooting of it was very much, these were people I I know, and they're talking to me, and I'm not viewing it as footage. Mm -hmm. And um, when I sat down and looked looked at the footage for the first time, because, again, I had no idea what story um, I wanted to tell, but as I watched the footage, it just struck me so hard um, that this was a movie about family, Mm -hmm. And it was about people who had come from usually very tragic families, and they they recreated a family for themselves at exactly. the shop. That's right, right, with a father figure who was the hairdresser himself. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I again, I want to thank you. I really enjoyed the film. Now, when will be people be able to see this, Jason? Uh, well, cl- it's it's screening at Sebastopol um, okay. <laughs> on March twenty third at two fifteen. Okay. Our next filmmaker is Malia Bruker, who is the director, camera operator, editor, composer, screenwriter, and star of a delightful short film called Chase. Well, I'll tell you, I just loved your film. I, I was intrigued from when the start, when you're driving along in the car over the paper, you know, highway there. Uh, and you had help with, the, I gather from the credits, with the animation on that sequence. Yes, I did. That was um, the only editing that I didn't do myself, um, and I had a, a great uh, friend and colleague, Alina Postula, who who did that part. Well, the the setup. Do you want to tell the setup, or do you want me to do it for you? Um, I'd be curious to hear how you would set it up, actually. <laughs> well, essentially, you moved to Temple, I gather, to go to film school, which is in Philadelphia. And That's- you had had a relationship, I assume a, a, a bank account or something, with Chase from where you had lived before. This is Chase Bank. And uh, there are no Chase Banks in Philadelphia. However, they found that you'd moved and got your address and started mailing you quite frequently, you know, several times a week, an invitation to uh, reconnect with them. And you then got the clever idea of saying, well, my gosh, uh, maybe we should start a love relationship and and I should communicate back and say, well, you know, I might be interested. Is that right? That sounds right. Yeah, that's about right. (laughs) Okay. So it's a different and quirky kind of thing. Did you have a uh, sense, this is a show tri- primarily where we have conversations with writers. Did you write this out ahead of time? Did you have a, a screenplay or a scenario or a synopsis or something you worked with, or is this just happened on the fly? I actually did not have a, a, a treatment or a script or a, a real plan going into this, which I think um, you know accounts for some of the quirky nature of it. Um, I, I really just knew that I wanted to use the the letters in some way, and I really just kind of let myself explore how how to work with them as they came along. So I would just um, you know edit the pieces, edit the edit the video that I shot with the letters uh, bit by bit, and 
as I would edit, I would uh, write voiceover, you know, kind of as I went along. So, you know, I didn't know how the film was going to end really until uh, until I, I shot that last um, bit. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it was a little different way of working for me, but I found it really freeing and enjoyable. Well, the fun thing is you, you work with not quite a blank canvas as your uh, format, if we will, which is uh, I gather you'd bought used somewhere or pre pre uh, with the words love on it and a little bit of the uh, the scenes around Philadelphia already kind of, you know, charcoal penciled in. Yeah, I, I bought it on Craigslist for forty five dollars and um, it did it had the fountain and um, uh, I believe that. That might have been it, and maybe, the, yeah, the love was on there already, that's right, and, um, but not the buildings, that, but I could tell which place in Philly the original artist was trying to capture, so I, I thought I'd go ahead and fill it in for her. Mm-hmm. And then you start adding your own little quirky parts to it. Yeah, I, I kind of just, um, you know, I, I think also having moved, and, and I, I definitely am playing a character in the movie. I, I didn't. I'm not that lonely and, and odd. Oh, I'm glad. I'm like, so um, glad to hear that. <laughs> I feel like that's kind of that's the type of person that can be swept up into you know the kind of advertising and marketing that banks and other companies do. Um, so I kind of let those emotions just kind of happen as as they might for someone who was feeling pretty lonely and and ended up you know as you saw with an entire kind of world dedicated to chase yeah well the fun scene is when you're waiting on valentine's day and you've sent out a uh, i love you kind of message and you sit by the mailbox literally peering through with you know your fingers opening the little flap and wondering if in fact you're going to get a response sort of like charlie brown used to do in peanuts <laughs> yeah that's right i uh I, d- I took it kind of far and, and imagined the uh, the entire romance as it might play out mm-hmm one of the other fun things is the screenshots you've done where you do the Skype with your parents and your ex-boyfriend, and then you put their comments in this as well. So were, yeah, they, were think, they prepared you know, or scripted? Beyond just kind of a silly, you know, fake romance story, uh-huh. I think that the whole experience really, to me, spoke to how we communicate today often, you know, where your friends and family might not be right next door. They might not be in your neighborhood. So we communicate in these ways that are, you know, through media, through Skype, mm-hmm. on the phone, through mm-hmm. email. Um, whereas, you know, I was receiving these letters that were, you know, that I could touch and, and really hang on to from a multinational corporation. So for me, um, those were conversations I was just actually having. And, um, and, I, and I wanted to include them because they did speak to me about communication today and a, a larger um, kind of story. The other fun thing about it is how the bank is trying to buy your favorite, starting out at fifty dollars and then going up. Is it a hundred at the top? Yes, that's right. <laughs> right. The um, the part that well, I can't. There's so many parts that I enjoyed, um, but it all comes together in a wonderful way. And I don't want to give away the ending at all. But there's one thing where you talk about and you show the address. Uh, I don't know if you did that intentionally, but then fortunately you mentioned a few, you know, minutes later that you have moved. I'm just wondering if you keep in touch with the people who have your old address and they're getting, you know, love letters from people who see your film who want to meet you. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. You know, I am not really in touch with my former roommate um, who I was living with at the time. So Uh I should check in because I, you know, that's that's a good point. I may have some other, you know, love interests at this point. (laughs) Well, you may have another movie in there. That's that's right. Yeah. To be continued. 
Well, Malia Bruker, I appreciate uh, calling and talking with you. It's been really fun. And when are we going to see her film on the weekend? So it's playing twice. Um, it's playing along with Andrew Bird um, on Friday night at the Rialto, and it's playing again with Down East on a Saturday afternoon, one forty-five, at also at the Rialto. Well, and this is Malia's coming to Sebastopol. That's, also. That is so great. I'm I'm gonna, looking forward to meeting you then. And I'm glad I look that forward you're to meeting you too. Thanks not, so much. I'm glad you're not as lonely as you appear on that film. <laughs> it's quite fun. It's uh, it's one of those documentaries that uh, you know has a really quirky sense of humor, and I think the audiences will love it. I hope so. Thank you. Thank nice you. talking to you. All right. Thanks, Malia. Okay. Bye-bye. So in summary, what would you suggest people do? How should they look at this wonderful program, multicolors, multi-pages uh, that they can pick up? Where are they going to find these programs, by the way? Well, we're trying to distribute them as far as wide as we can. Obviously, you can always get them at the Sebastopol Center for the Arts. Mm -hmm. we got them in as many uh, storefronts and uh, magazine racks as we can get them in around Sebastopol, Santa Rosa, mm -hmm. and all over Sonoma County. But we're, we're trying to get them out even further if we can. So, yeah, I would say uh, keep your eyes out for them. Big uh, yellow and red uh, brochure that, that you'll see out there. One of the helpful things is if you open to the middle fold, you're not going to find a scantily clad person. You're going to find a wonderful chart which outlines what happens through the whole weekend. And you can see the different venues outlined. The little red hand, by the way, is a room, so don't wonder about that. It's There's a there's a whole history which you can ask when you get there as why it's named that. And then uh, the other ones are fairly obvious where they are. They're they're all within walking distance of the you know the main street of downtown Sebastopol. And um, it's, it's going to be a really, really – well, with the exception of the Laguna Foundation, right. which is a little bit out. Randy, Jason, thank you so much. Uh, I want you just to do one more time where people can find the information about the festival. Uh, yeah, absolutely. They can uh, go to the website at SebastopolFilmFestival.org and um, uh, all the trailers and, and all the information for buying tickets is there. And you can always come to the Sebastopol Center for the Arts, 282 South High Street. And the phone number? is 829-4797. That's 707-829-4797. Thank you, both of you, so much for coming in today. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Gil. You have been listening to Word by Word, conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Tonight's program featured writers from two distinctive Sonoma County activities, the National Endowment for the Arts March 2013 Big Read, focusing on the poetry of Emily Dickinson, and the 6th Annual Sebastopol Documentary Film Festival, which runs from Thursday, March 21st through Sunday, March 24th. Our studio engineer this evening is Mark Fuller. Our program director is Robin Pressman. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We invite you to tune in to our next Word by Word broadcast at 7 o'clock Wednesday evening, April 6th, when, with the help of Copperfield's books, our guest will be the internationally acclaimed novelist Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni, sharing from her latest novel, Oleander Girl. I suggest you might see Chitra in person on the evening of March 16th at Copperfield's Petaluma Branch. But until we gather together again, consider Emily Dickinson's poem. It's all I have to bring today, this and my heart beside, this and my heart, in all the fields and all the meadows wide, be sure you count, should I forget, some one the sum could tell, this and my heart and all the bees, which in the clover dwell. <laughs>